Welcome to the Forensic Nutritionist Podcast. My name is Fiona Tuck. I'm a nutritional medicine practitioner and a qualified skin therapist for over 25 years. The Forensic Nutritionist Podcast takes an investigative approach into all things nutrition, gut health and skin, using qualified experts to bring you information that you can trust. We are all unique. The information presented herein is not intended to diagnose, to treat or cure disease. Please seek professional medical guidance prior to modifying any diet, exercise or lifestyle program. Let us begin. On the podcast today, we have Marnina Dipros. Now, Marnina is a passionate dermal clinician. She has a Bachelor of Health Science and she majored in dermal sciences and also has postgraduate studies in micropigmentation of the skin and also skin cancer medicine. Marnina is the founder of Derm Health Co and she's a lecturer at Victoria University. She works with Skin Smart Australia and she conducts corporate skin cancer assessments and mole mapping services. So today on the podcast, we are talking about skin cancer. Marnina, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Fiona. It's such a pleasure to be here and speak to you. Talking about skin cancer, um, what made you interested in skin cancer in particular? Well, I think it stemmed from my studies as a dermal clinician. So I um, launched into a degree predominantly looking at the skin and the lymphatic system. And I was always really passionate about skin health. Um, There's lots of aesthetics clinics out there. And although I have worked in aesthetics clinics, I really am passionate about our largest organ that protects us from the outside world. And as I was working in these aesthetics clinics, I noticed that a lot of the treatments that we were actually performing were removing pigmentation, um, removing you know, redness on the skin from sun damage. And we see a lot of sun damage in Australia. And then it kind of got me thinking about what are we actually treating? And I always like to get to the real bottom of something and really know everything that I can about it. And as I did some more research, I realized that um, we may be actually unintentionally going over areas that are sun damaged skin where potentially there could be non-melanoma or even melanoma skin cancers. And I just didn't feel comfortable treating those modalities without having a deeper understanding of what I was actually seeing on the skin. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Mm. yeah. So that's when I um, started looking into um studying for for skin cancer medicine and i connected with um jane from skin smart australia and they have uh, dermoscopists all over australia and we do skin cancer assessments and it was just the perfect match where i was able to not only do post-grad studies but also be looking at the skin and be practicing in it Uh, skin cancer medicine type practice at the same time so that I was really able to hone in on my skills. It's it's really interesting and a a really valid point that you bring up about you know all those treatments in different clinics and laser clinics and light therapy treatments and I have to admit I do wonder about those myself I mean I have had them as well but I guess we don't really know exactly what what we're 
what they're actually doing to the um, doing to the skin yet, um, and we will get to that a little bit bit later on. But when it comes to skin cancer, how prevalent is skin cancer in Australia compared to the rest of the world? Well, melanoma of the skin across the globe is the 19th most commonly occurring cancer in men and women. And Australia leads the way in um, the amount of skin cancers that are found. So we're actually number one in the world, followed by yeah. New Zealand, Norway, Denmark, and US is right down on the 17th of the list. So Australia is at the very top. Uh, two in three Australians will get some form of skin cancer by the time that they are 70, um, which is a pretty alarming statistic. We have this concept that it's not going to happen to us. Um, but two in three people will get non-melanoma or melanoma skin cancer at some point in their lives. And in 2016, there were approximately um, 1,960 people that died from skin cancer in Australia. And out That's of those, huge. Yeah, a massive. 1,200 of those were for melanoma and almost 700 were for non-melanoma skin cancer. So it's actually higher than the death toll. Mm. Um, and if we actually look at skin cancer as across the board of different types of cancers in Australia, melanoma is actually the most common form of skin cancer in young Australians. So I wow. think there's this misconception that um, melanoma is seen in elderly people, but it can actually occur at any age on anyone. Um, so I think it really just opened my eyes to how prolific skin cancer and melanoma is in Australia. Wow. I mean, that is frightening. I know that the Slip Slop campaign, you know, a few years back did really, or I thought it did, <laughs> raise awareness for, for some protection. Um, and people do seem more aware now of protecting the skin. But do you think that that now maybe they're protecting the skin and then they're maybe being outside for too long? Or do you think it's because we're living outside more in Australia? Or is it that we're just not having regular skin cancer checks? I think it's probably a combination of all three, Fiona. And I mean, we might see statistically that the rates have increased in Australia of skin cancer. But there was a time when we didn't even know skin cancer was existent. And when someone, for example, had melanoma and then it had metastasized yes. in their lungs or something, they might not have even known that there was a primary lesion and it was caused from a melanoma. So I think the um, raising awareness of what skin cancer is has also seen, I guess, an increase in, in the statistics of it occurring. Whether that is actually increasing or not, I can't be sure. I, mm. I have to on that mm. um, i think the slip slop campaign really did help to raise awareness of sun protection and particularly with young children uh, it's really important that we protect their skin because under the age of 16 uh, five skin can or sorry five um, sunburns will significantly increase our risk of developing melanoma um, but I think we're spending time outdoors and not maybe getting burnt to a crisp like we used to, but we're spending time outdoors and we're getting this accumulative sun damage. So no tan is a healthy tan. And it's this accumulative sun damage that may result in things like non-melanoma skin cancer. 
Yeah. Well, I guess as well, you know, the minute we do have colour um, from a tan, that is a sign that the, the skin is in distress and it's a way that the skin is trying to protect itself, isn't it? So already there is, is damage. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think this idea that we apply sunscreen and then we can stay outside all day is um, quite another misconception because if we think of the SPF rating, SPF rating really just means sun protective factor. So this is a measure of how long sunscreen will protect you from the UVB rays. And um, the higher the SPF, the longer the time that you may stay outside before getting burnt. But SPF doesn't measure UVA. So when we're looking at UVA and UVB rays, UVB is what causes the burn. And this typically causes more damage to the epidermis, so the skin's outer layer. So this is when we have more of an increase in non-melanoma skin cancer. However, UVA is um, the type of ray that actually penetrates deeper into our skin. And this is where we have the DNA damage. And when we have this DNA damage, this is what increases our risk of melanoma. So it's important that when we're looking at a sunscreen, I guess, we're looking for something that's a broad spectrum. And that means that it's going to protect us from both UVA and UVB. I think that's a really important point to mention because I think a lot of people think, well, I didn't get burnt, so I'm going to be okay. And it is something, Marnina, that I see a lot where people will just keep reapplying sunscreen. So they'll be out in the sun or at the beach all day. Um, they haven't got burnt and they think that they're absolutely safe. But I think people do forget that there is that radiation from the UV and the skin can only cope with so much radiation and, you know, the, we can produce DNA repair enzymes and then eventually we can't keep up with that amount of UV radiation and that's when we do get that DNA mutation and cell damage. So I think probably the education there on the UVA could be better. Mm, that's it. And, and also how much are we actually using? So you might be reapplying three, four, five times a day but are you using enough? Um, it's, it's estimated that about only 25% of us are using enough sunscreen. And then we see, you know, those spray sunscreens come out and we think, oh, that's so easy to apply. You know, the ones in the, um, the shaker bottle, the aerosol. Absolutely. We need like a, a teaspoon of sunscreen on our face alone. That's if we're not bald. If, we, if we're bald, we need two teaspoons on our face alone. And I can assure you that you would almost use a whole jar of one of those if you were um, try if you're actually using enough sunscreen. That's right, and that's really um, that's to protect us from from burning. But as I said, you know, with the the radiation, the radiation, then we've got the free radical damage that occurs as well from the sun. Um, and I guess that's another reason why antioxidants in skincare and particularly SPF are, are so important to, to help protect the skin as well. Um, I think some really good points there mentioned. So when we're checking the skin or when you're checking the skin, what are you actually looking for? How do you check the skin? How do you do a mole map? Well, there's... There's different ways that we can do skin cancer assessments. So the first way would be uh, what we call a skin check. Um, and a skin check is using a tool called a dermatoscope. And this has a light and magnification on it. Um, and this allows us to view things closer. 
um, but it also is a coherent light so that we can actually see the structures of that particular lesion of the skin more clearly. And we use this tool to look at every lesion on the skin. So we're talking about um, pigmented, non-pigmented, flat, raised uh, lesions, and we do look at the entire skin. So we're looking at the scalp, we're looking inside the mouth, the nose, inside the ears, you know, between the toes, underneath the fingernails. Um, and it's important that if someone is getting skin checked that we are looking at the entire body and the entire skin. And what I often say to people is, uh, first of all, I want to see what um, their skin, their moles look like. Everyone has a unique mole pattern, a bit like a finger, a fingerprint. And if something sits outside of that fingerprint type pattern, then I want to either first identify what that lesion is. So is it a benign lesion um, or is it something that perhaps is showing clues to malignancy? And if it is showing clues to malignancy, then we would want a second opinion. So at that point, they would receive a recommendation letter and then they would follow up with their GP who would then um, either do a biopsy or we might um, review the lesion in a few months. And this is where mole mapping comes in. So mole mapping is rather than just looking at the skin and then perhaps giving a recommendation letter for further investigation, mole mapping is actually taking photographs of the lesion. So we take a series of photographs from far away right up to that dermatoscopic close-up image. And typically what we'll do is we'll have that person have one mole map. So it might be their initial mole map where we get a whole map of their skin. And then in three months time, they will come in for a review. And we might take those photos of all or some of those lesions again, and we compare those images. And we look for those subtle clues. And this three month time frame is this kind of global recognized time frame that if it is malignant, then we're likely going to see changes over that time. And we might even watch these lesions over a period of years, you know, that person's life. And if at one point that lesion is changing significantly, we want to investigate why. Right. So, I mean, it really is quite important for anyone that hasn't had a, a skin check to actually have one so that you can get that baseline, I guess, of the, the mole map so that you have a reference point. Exactly. Mole mapping is excellent as a reference point. However, mole mapping, um, it's not covered under Medicare. There are some um, health insurance that you'll be able to get a claim back. So unless someone's high risk or they have a significant amount of moles, then um, regular skin checks is most definitely recommended. And by regular, we would say every year. If it's a high risk patient, then we would say a skin check every six months and a mole map every um, 12 months unless they actually had a previous history of skin cancer where they would do it more regularly. And, and what would a, a high risk be? Somebody with a lot of moles or a, a history of skin cancer in the family? So there's a few things that we look for. So one would be how many sunburns under the age of 16. And if they have um, five sunburns under the age of 16, then that would increase you being a high risk. Um, more than 50 moles on their body. Uh, if you were on immunosuppressant medications, um, if you had uh, if you had melanoma in the family, because it can actually um, be in your family, but it's not mm -hmm. always. Um, 
and if you have been diagnosed with something like dysplastic nevisis syndrome so this is when someone has many moles and often the mole structure and the mole patterns are very obscure so um, this is what we call dysplastic nevi and those types of people would also be in high risk category interesting i think i am actually because i have so many moles but um thankfully i grew up in the the uk where there is very little sunlight <laughs> or yeah. sunshine um which i think my dermatologist said probably did did really help and um so that was that was a good thing but i i do or have only just started actually having having regular checks um but it is something that i think is is very important what about though those people that maybe do have or maybe potentially be at risk or anyone really that maybe um has moles or even doesn't have many moles but just doesn't really go out much in the sun um they're still at risk right Yes. So um, in regards to who's a high risk as well, most Australians, most Australians are actually high risk because um, we're not really designed to be in this climate. Most of us have had multiple um, sunburns. And when we're talking about skin cancer, there is this misconception that if you don't go out into the sun, that, you're, that you are safe. Yeah. Now, 95% of melanomas, which is the most deadly form of skin cancer, is caused from UV damage. Um, however, melanoma can occur on anyone at any age, on anywhere that we have skin. So in the ears, eyes, nose, mouth, genital area, under the soles of the feet. Um, and while melanomas um, that are not caused from the sun are less rare than those that are caused from UV. Um, someone that might have a personal history or family history, or it might just be in their genes can also develop melanoma. Uh, so it's not just sun exposure. And also just because you get sunburnt, say on your shoulder, doesn't mean that you're going to get melanoma on your shoulder. You have to think of our skin as an organ. So any damage to that organ is going to um, set off an alarm throughout the entire system. So you could get sunburnt on your shoulder once in your life, but perhaps that could be enough damage to your DNA that you could develop melanoma between your toes. Mm, that's fascinating. That's um, pretty alarming statistics, actually. And um, hopefully anyone listening to this will, if you haven't had a check or if you are due for one, it, it might be that prompt that, that you need. Now, Mani, something you mentioned earlier, which, um, again, had a few alarm bells going off for me, was when you were talking about aesthetic treatments, you know, things such as lasers and light therapy treatments. Do we know what they're, what kind of effect that they are having on um, potentially skin cancer? I mean, for instance, I've had pigmentation removal on my, my face and my um, decolletage, and I used to have a mole on my um, decolletage that's gone. So I do wonder, you know, what's happening underneath? Do we, do we know? Could we, could we potentially miss changes in the skin after these treatments? Absolutely. And this is an area that um, I know people that are dermal clinicians that have now done dermoscopy or, or just um, the, the kind of industries are coming together to try and figure out how can we prevent this. Um, but I guess 
first of all, uh, often when I say we may be missing signs of skin cancer, people that are not in skin cancer will say, well, lasen as a non-irradiating, so they don't cause cancer. That's not what we're saying. What we are saying mm. is that um, laser may remove those clues to malignancy, and I'll talk about the clues in a little bit of a moment, um, but also uh, laser, we think of high-intensity laser, right? So for rejuvenation and things like that. But what if we're using something like LED or low-level laser that we know increases APP within the cell, so it increases energy within the cell, and it might help to stimulate, um, you know, the, the faster rejuvenation of cell yep. turnover, which is great for healing. But what if we do that over a skin cancer unknowingly? Could we perhaps be stimulating that growth of non-melanoma skin cancer or melanoma skin cancer unknowingly? So I think it's not just these aesthetic treatments that we're actually ablating tissue or we're removing things. It could also be more these healing ones as well. So it's just really important that any type of aesthetic treatment we are considering, uh, has that person had a regular skin check and is there anything on the skin that we need to be aware of? Um, now, in regards to aesthetic treatments, if we just think about how lasers work on the skin, okay, so that they'll have a different target. So basically with a laser, um, say we were looking at treating vascular components on, on the chest, for example, and often this might be caused from UV damage, it will then um, cause damage to the capillaries, which will cause them to dilate, and then we have that redness on the skin, that flushing on the skin. So these lasers that we use for that type of treatment will be targeted for, the, the target will be the hemoglobin. So we're wanting to essentially um, coagulate those blood vessels so that um, they're not there anymore, so that we kind of destroy them. In certain types of skin cancers, some of these clues are actual, actually vessels. So in squamous cell carcinoma, in basal cell carcinoma, some of the clues that we look for are these branched arborizing vessels or um, vessels in different types of patterns or what we call polymorphic vessels. So mm -hmm. we have um, vessels that are all different types of, um, of types of patterns. So that's one aspect, I guess. So if, for vascular treatments, we're treating the whole area um, are we perhaps removing some of these vascular clues? And then with pigmentation, um, pigmentation lasers essentially do they do the same thing? They are absorbed by the melanin in the skin, and that darker melanin or that, that, that darker lesion or pigmentation is absorbing that light, and then it will destruct, and that pigment will be either removed by our um, lymphatic system or move upwards, and the skin will slough off. But Pigmented lesions um, will sometimes turn into melanoma. It's, it's reported that about 30% of melanomas actually occur in existing moles. So this could be a mole someone's had their entire life. So if we're removing these moles in a high-risk individual, then we're not able to see those clues anymore because that pigmentation is gone. So we can't see any changes. Yeah. Um, so it is quite scary, I guess, when we're thinking about these types of treatments that just remove uh, pigment and vessels 
and we don't have any clues to what we're looking for in the skin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, sorry, sorry. Also consider that a lot of these treatments are actually performed in sun-damaged skin. And in sun-damaged skin, this is where we see non-melanoma skin cancers because that's what they cause from. They cause from sun damage. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just something that we need to consider more strictly when we are performing these types of treatments. You know, it, it's a really valid point and it is something that I myself have always sort of wondered about. And um, I think with the skincare industry, it isn't that well regulated. So basically anyone um, in New South Wales really can, can pick up a laser, um, which is a, is a concern. And I think, you know, it is important to go to a qualified professional, but even then I think um, making sure that you have that skin check, the mole mapping um, and get regular skin cancer checks so that these things can actually be monitored by a professional um, is so, so important. Mm. And I mean, particularly with the aging population, they have higher rates of skin cancer because they've got that accumulated sun damage. And these aesthetic procedures, you know, we're focusing on trying to decrease the signs of aging and have this, um, you know, lush, just porcelain skin with um, no pigment or no vessels in it. So uh, I think it's it's something that is kind of driven by this this want of having this porcelain skin, but it's not necessarily in the best interest of our health. Um, and something I just wanted to mention, Fiona, just, I guess, for a bit of transparency, some uh, specialists will actually treat skin cancer with forms of laser. So yes. Type um, and I don't want to disregard that, but they actually are using the intensities knowingly um, trying to remove that skin cancer. So it's when we're going in there, we don't know what we're looking for. We might be treating enough to remove that pigment, but it might not be at a high enough level that it's actually going to be deep enough and actually ablate and remove any of those skin cancers if there are any in that particular area. Absolutely. And, you know, just to clarify, we're not saying laser is bad. We're just saying these, these are areas that you need to be aware of. Um, some professionals can actually use laser to treat um, exactly. these things, but it's just about sort of eyes wide open and, and knowing who you're going to and, and knowing that you're having treatments performed safely and, and just an awareness of this, I think is really important because it might be something that people don't, don't know about. So, you know, we've spoken about pigmentation and um, vascular laser treatments and how they may affect the skin. What about something like just general laser hair removal? Because pretty much everybody I know has laser hair removal and it's thought to be a, a non-invasive, harmless treatment. Is there any possibility that that could even affect the skin? Um, well, firstly... It's termed non-invasive, I guess, because there's not really any downtime. But if we actually think about what's happening at the, at the structures within the skin, we are, um, we are damaging structures so that hair is not going to grow anymore. So it actually is invasive if you think of it that way. Mm. Um, the other thing is that laser hair removal is often performed on really large areas of the body. So, you know, often the, the full arm, the full back, 
the full legs. For women, um, the melanoma is actually found most on women's legs. And for men, it's the more reported cases in the back. And I'm not sure exactly why this is. It, it, I think it might have something to do with where we actually deposit our fats. But if we think of laser hair removal, women often get their legs done. Men often get their back done. Okay. And for laser hair removal, it's the same principle that we were talking about before with pigmentation lasers. It's that we're working on a deeper level or layer within the skin. So the, the laser is attracted to the pigment of the hair which then causes heat and it destroys that hair follicle. But in order to have silky smooth skin, you need to treat the whole area, right? So if someone is very moly, um, and what I do often see is that moles are treating, are got, are, um, being treated straight over the top, which might result in loss of pigment to that area. And I've even been at or worked in clinics where people will say to their clients, oh, you're getting a bonus pigmentation treatment as well because you might have some residual whitening to your, um, you know, your moles and your pigmented lesions over your skin. And the clients will often say, oh, what a bonus. That's great. You know, lightening and hair removal. Um, and this is actually really a dangerous type of comment to say because we really shouldn't be removing pigmented lesions. And we're not just talking about freckles. We're talking about isolated pigmented and non-pigmented lesions. So they don't necessarily have to be um, raised. So when you're having laser, laser hair removal, um, I would be ensuring that none of your moles are actually being lasered over the top. This might mean that you have a little bit of extra hair around the area because we're not able to you know, treat over that area. But I think for the higher risk type individuals, this is a bit of a safety guard to ensure that when you do go have your mole map or your skin check, when we do compare those photographs, we're actually able to track the changes in those lesions if any are to occur. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some people literally are covered in moles. I mean, I am, my husband is. So, you know, for us having, if we were to have say laser hair removal on the legs, I, I wouldn't be able to have it if it meant leaving out the moles because there wouldn't be much to leave out. But um, I guess it's, it's about knowing, you know, what's occurring and also making sure you have those checks and perhaps maybe not everyone is suitable to hair removal or those people maybe have a referral to uh, have the mole map and the skin check prior to hair removal may be a good way to go as well. That's right. I think the best practice would really be to have a policy. I mean, if you're working in the industry and you are performing these treatments, have a policy in place that you do have a skin check or a mole mat before and they must um, bring evidence of that. Um, and if you're a client or a patient that's going to have laser hair removal, just make sure that you are getting regular skin checks. And I don't want to scare anyone out there that's thought, well, oh my goodness, I've had all these laser hair removals. Have I got melanoma that I don't know about? If you haven't had a skin check, go have a skin check. Um, and really, if it's, it's more at, you're more at risk if you're a high-risk individual. So if you've got a previous um, case of melanoma, um, it's not to say that no one should have laser hair removal if they have lots of moles. It's just to be considerate and be aware of the potential for maybe removing those clues. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, the purpose of us talking about this is, again, not to scare anyone and put them off having treatments. It's more about having an awareness to have regular skin checks. Um, exactly. Because it's so, so important. And, you know, I, I've myself, a couple of friends have had um, melanoma. Um, one survived and is thriving and unfortunately one didn't survive. Mm. Um, and so it, it is a subject that I think is, is probably not spoken about enough and, and so important to, to bring awareness. Um, and one, one is male and, um, yeah, sure enough, it was on his back, but probably because of a lot of outdoor work and um, not having a shirt on and in um, summer getting a lot of sun damage there and eventually that, that did turn into a melanoma, but luckily caught it in time and um, it is well now, but it, it's a very scary thing to, to go through. Yeah. So if someone has had a, a melanoma removed, has been it's been found and it's it's been removed. Is there much scarring that that comes with that? Are there any treatments that could be beneficial? Because I guess we've just said about you know some rejuvenation treatments could be stimulating. So does that mean then if you've had maybe a melanoma on the face removed, should you avoid? Um, stimulating, rejuvenating type treatments, or would these be beneficial to assist with the scarring? So I guess when we're talking about melanoma, often there will be quite a large incision to make sure that it's all removed. Um, and the rates of non-melanoma skin cancer is, well, we see non-melanoma skin cancer in sun-damaged skin. So we see these on the arms, the face, the neck, you know, the, the shoulders and things. And the thing, the difference, I guess, between non-melanoma skin cancer is, it, is these will, can grow deeper into the muscle and into the bone. So while they typically don't metastasize, they can be quite disfiguring. Mm. So um, for both non-melanoma skin cancers and melanoma skin cancer, if it's on the face and all the margins have been removed and they're not under any further treatment, then with the right um I guess, training and the right modalities, we can certainly reduce the scarring. But with any type of scar rejuvenation, I'd be saying that it's really important from the very get-go. So making sure that the inflammation does not become chronic, um, making sure that we're using SPF on the scar because we know that uh, UV exposure to new types of collagen will degrade that collagen so the scar won't be as good quality. So protecting that scar in the sun Using things like silicone, um, silicone is uh, one of the only types of topical treatments that has actually been shown to help with scarring. And there's also some practitioners that are using things like antioxidants underneath this silicone type tape or silicone type um, gel as well. And then when it comes to the treatments itself, so clinical treatments, these might range from everything from things like um, uh, ablative to non-ablative lasers. Uh, so it will really depend on the tools of the practitioner, but there's certainly lots of things that we can do to reduce scarring. Um, and if we have any skin cancer on the face, and particularly melanoma when there might be lymph nodes involved or large scars, we also have to consider um, the development of lymphedema. So um, mm -hmm. if there's pooling of fluid around the area because of the scar, 
then this might result in lymphedema of the face. And when this occurs, it can not only be quite disfiguring and traumatic for the individual, but it might also limit their ability to eat or um, talk um, and also can be quite uncomfortable as well. And lymphedema or, or swelling, I guess, or pooling of the lymphatic system for, for people that aren't aware of what that is. Um, and, I, and I guess, you know, some people as well do have the lymph nodes removed depending on where the um, melanoma is too, which can, can cause problems in other areas of, of the body. And I, I know um, lymphatics is another passion of yours and maybe we can get you back and, and talk about that another another time because there's there's so much to cover and um, so when it comes to i guess trying to protect our skin as much as we can from developing precancerous or, or can cancerous lesions apart from sbs what can people do to protect their skin Great. I'm so glad you asked apart from SPF because SPF is only part of the solution and it actually should really only be like a second line of defence. The first line of defence against skin cancer or uh, skin cancer caused by UV uh, exposure is not being in the sun, unfortunately. I mean, we need um, sun for vitamin D production, but it's estimated that for a FITS1, FITS2, so a Caucasian skin type, we only need about 10 minutes a day, which isn't a lot. Most of us get that. Um, so it would be using clothing to cover up and a good indicator with clothing or hats that if you hold it up to the sun, can you see light through it? And the more light you can see through it, the less... Um, the less protection that you're getting as well. And another thing is you still need to go outdoors. You know, there's, there's lots of life and love and joy um, experienced outdoors. So uh, having a look at the UV rating on any given day, and then you can decide as towards your management plan. So do you need to use more, more clothing? Do you need to use more hats, sunglasses as well? Um, and, Everyone will have access to the UV rating. It's mostly, uh, you can find it on your weather app. If you scroll down, if the, if the UV is under three, your skin's safe. If it's three or above, that's when we need to start thinking about protecting our skin in the sun. And also, of course, as we mentioned before, regular skin checks. Absolutely. And I think, you know, anyone with children as well, making sure that, you know, clothing, they're well protected. Um, I, I live at the beach, so I see little kids running around, no clothes on. Um, just the other day, I saw a young child running around and it was burnt. And um, I found that quite stressful, to be honest. I actually went up to the parent, which was a little bit controversial and said, do you know your child is really burnt? And unfortunately, there was a shrug and a, oh, I'll be all right. It's like, no, um, little white body that had gone red and the child must have only been about three. Um, it, it, it is frightening. So I, I do think there, there still is a lot of education that, that needs to be done and um, trying to educate people as much as possible. And even, you know, topical antioxidants on the skin, you know, I'm all about nutrition, getting the right antioxidants in the body because we know that they can also help to protect the skin. So I'm not saying eat carrots as a form of SBS, but making sure we get those antioxidants yeah. in the body are also going to be playing a valuable role in skin health as well. Absolutely. Very, 
very important message that you shared with us today, Marnina. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, you also are the founder of Derm Health Co. Can you tell us a little bit about that before we, we finish today? Sure. Um, so Derm Health Co. started, um, I guess, while I was in the aesthetics industry and while I was also doing these um, other types of treatments like micropigmentation and um, skin checks, what I found is people were asking me about other types of treatments that they could be having. Um, on their skin to either treat their scarring or their lymphedema or um, things like this and they often didn't know the treatments that are available to them or even how or where to find a practitioner uh, and it's common I'm, I, I'm guessing that it's probably in the nutrition world as well and the medical world is that often practitioners whether it be allied health or medical practitioners or um, even you know dermal therapists dermal clinicians and things they might not necessarily be talking to other um specialists in the field about what might be happening with that treatment and we know that we can get better results for people if we kind of have this collaborative approach and I thought well if people don't if, if it's even hard for me to find a practitioner how is it going to be for someone that doesn't even know what they need let alone um, what to look for so Dern Health Co um, was kind of born from that that gap in the industry to unite patients with practitioners uh, and provide evidence-based education on skin to really empower people on their skin health journey for both um, acute and chronic skin conditions, um, whether it be caused from a skin disease, trauma, surgery, um, and really just create this platform where it really has a focus on, on um, skin health. Fantastic. And I think the good thing about that is that Different people specialise in different areas and I think it's important to know that not one person is a one-stop shop. So they might be very good at laser hair removal or they may specialise in lymphatic drainage. It's about knowing who to go to that specialises in a particular area and I feel that referral is so key when it comes to knowing who to go to. I get asked all the time, people often ask me, for different different people in different areas and it's important to know that you know different people do specialize in different things so having a resource like that i think it's fantastic because presumably all the people on your website are people that you you trust and you can recommend <laughs> that's right and and they're, they're specialists in that particular field so um that's absolutely that's absolutely correct that's fantastic. Anything else exciting that you're working on? I know that you are very, very busy. You, you're also lecturing at Victoria University, um, which is keeping you busy. Any new plans in the pipeline for you? Um, just, I guess, as a disclosure, I'm a sessional lecturer with VU, so not um, full-time, but I do yep. um, also clinical education as well, which is really exciting in the lymph biology um, kind of fields. Um, with Dermhouse Co, we're really just building that list of practitioners uh, and trying to get out there and let people know about this um, platform that we have. So um, that's really what we're um, kind of looking at building at the moment. And we're doing that through podcast. Um, we will be starting to do some webinars as well. So if anyone has either a skin 
condition or they're living with someone with a skin condition or they're just interested in skin or a practitioner that might deal with someone with some skin condition, whether it be, you know, right down from, you know, laser hair removal for someone that has um, PCOS or it might be more that psychosocial aspect and dealing with that psychosocial aspect of living with a skin condition, then we want to hear from you as well. Fantastic. Now, if anybody does want to check out your directory or listen to the podcast, how can we find you? Okay, so uh, you can either visit us online, which is www.dermhealth.co. Um, our Instagram handle is dermhealth.co, or you're welcome to email me with any questions on info at dermhealth.co. Fantastic. Marlena, thank you for joining us today. You're a wealth of information and we look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thank you, Fiona. It was a real pleasure. Thank you.